Uh, my name's Mike Edinburn. Um, I am a mechanical engineer. I worked out at Sandia Laboratories for 35 years before I retired so that I could give presentations like this. Uh, I'm not a cosmologist or a physicist. Um, I've studied them a little bit. Uh, but I'll be giving it from the perspective of an engineer, and I think you'll see why as we, uh, as we go along. Okay, so we're going to be talking about evidence for design in cosmology and physics. Um, so the question is, where did our universe, which supports intelligent life, come from? That's a big question. Probably one of the most important questions that we can uh, ask. And there are three possibilities. And actually, uh, Mike uh, talked about these last night and did a really good job on it. Um, but I'll repeat it here. Uh, the first possibility is that it always existed. Well, if it always existed, stars, because they burn fuel, would have burned out long ago. But we have stars, and so that means that uh, the universe had to have come into existence at some finite time in the past. Another possibility is that it came into existence all by itself. Um, and you learned in physics that uh, matter and energy can be neither created nor destroyed, and so this would violate that principle. Um, on the other hand, there's a theory today called the multiverse theory we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, but uh, one problem with the idea of it coming into existence by itself is, okay, self, I'm going to create you. So how do you have something come into existence by itself? Because that means the self was there before to create the self that came into existence. Logically, it's, uh, it doesn't make much sense. So we're really left uh, with the, uh, the best explanation is that it was created by something outside itself. So can it have always existed? Uh, and this is what people thought until the 1930s. As a matter of fact, this is what Albert Einstein thought. Um, you might say, Einstein, he, he was a really smart guy. Surely he knew this thing about uh, the stars burning out. But the truth is, at that time, they didn't know where the light from stars came from. They didn't know what powered stars. Uh, but then Hubble observed that galaxies were moving away from each other um, and that the universe was expanding. Uh, and uh, an expanding universe implied that it had a beginning. Uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, a lot of scientists rejected this idea at first because it sounded too much like Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So uh, if it had always existed, it would be infinitely old and stars would have burned out. Uh, we call that heat death. Uh, the energy is still there, but it's not in a useful form. It's uniform everywhere. It can't flow from one place to the other. Life would be impossible. Um, but then there was the idea that the universe is oscillating. Uh, it's expanding and then it's going to contract and start all over again from where it started and expand and contract forever and ever. Well, thermodynamically, that doesn't work. Uh, as you know, if you take a, a ball and let it swing gradually, even in a vacuum, uh, the oscillations are going to die out. So thermodynamically, it would expand, contract, but it wouldn't contract back to where it started, and it wouldn't expand as far as it did before, and after a while, the, the expansion and contraction would basically go away. So the universe cannot have always existed.
That is a thermodynamic impossibility. Now we have the multiverse idea. I, have you all heard of the multiverse idea? Yeah, okay. Um, this is a, a well, it's not a, all that recent, uh, maybe 20, 30 years ago. Uh, but the idea is, is that um, all these universes are popping into existence uh, all the time. Um, and, uh, by, well, you know, there's some kind of universe generator maybe. Hmm, that, that presents problems too. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, <clears throat> there are two really big problems for the uh, astrophysicists. One is the question, what caused the universe to begin in the first place? And the second question is, why is the universe fine-tuned for life? And we'll be talking more about that fine-tuning. Um, so if the design argument is rejected, and sure enough, they rejected, uh, then there must be some kind of a, a universe generator uh, and um, a nearly infinite number of universes having random parameters so that at least one was right for life. If you have an infinite number of possibilities, then one's got to be right, right? Okay. Anyway, that I think is the real motivation uh, behind the multiverse theory. Now, if you're a, a Stephen Hawking fan, um, how many of you know who Stephen Hawking is? You know, the guy that rides the wheelchair, smartest man in the world, at least that's what some of them say. Uh, according to him, there are three things that are necessary for, uh, for multiverses to pop into existence. One is M-theory, which is a super string theory. Another one's quantum gravity. And then you have to have zero uh, net mass, uh, mass and energy for the universe. And these might permit multiple universes with varying parameters. On the other hand, they might not. Um, <clears throat> string theory it uh, is is interesting, but is uh, has not been verified. And there are several string theories, and they can't figure out which is the best one because none of them work for everything. Um, <clears throat> uh, quantum gravity. Uh, the idea in quantum mechanics is that sometimes you see things just popping into existence for a very short period of time, and then popping out of existence, and um, these are very small things. Uh, so something as big as the universe popping into existence for a long time doesn't work with, uh, with quantum mechanics. And the idea that gravity is quantized, that's speculation. Uh, like string theory, it's all speculation. And then there's the idea that there's zero net mass and energy in the universe. And the way they explain that is they, they add up uh, the mass and energy, and you know mass and energy have an equivalency. But then they subtract away the gravitational energy because gravity is negative, and they come up with maybe it's zero. Um, now, I was always taught that gravity, setting a zero point on gravity was just a convention. Uh, and so here again, we have speculation. Uh, purely speculation, that even if they're true, they don't necessarily lead to multiple universes or to parameter variation. What if all the parameters are the same? Um, and if they are true, where did quantum gravity and M-theory come from? Where did this universe generator come from? Well, actually, there's, there's no evidence uh, for a multiverse, nor can there be. So it's always going to be something that is speculation.
So we're, we're left with the fact that it uh, did not create itself and it has not been here forever. So it was created by something outside itself. Okay, I'm going to get into a little bit of uh, nuclear physics. Um, <clears throat> I'll, I'll beg your uh, pardon uh, to begin with here. Uh, but we're going to talk about um, fine-tuning. The cosmologists agree, all of them agree, that the universe is fine-tuned. Uh, and then some of them make up different reasons why they uh, believe this fine-tuning happened, like the multiverse theory. Um, but uh, we're going to start off by talking about stars. Uh, and stars produce energy and heavier elements by nuclear fusion. Uh, at the basic level, they fuse... Uh, protons, hydrogen nuclei, uh, into, into helium. And uh, the way that works is you take two protons, both positively charged, and you squeeze them together. Well, there's a problem because the protons are both positively charged, and you know that so uh, similar or the same charges repel each other. So what you have to do is you have to get these things going fast enough toward e each other to overcome this electromagnetic force that's pushing them apart. Uh, and then when they get close enough together, uh, there's a nuclear force. A nuclear force is a very powerful force that only operates over a very short distance. When they get close enough together, the nuclear force will, will bind them together. Um, but we don't have things that have two protons in them. Uh, one of the uh, protons decays into a, a neutron and gives off a, a positron uh, in, the, in the process. Now, I said that these, they, over, uh, they overcome the like charge problem because they're going, uh, moving together fast enough to where they can get close to each other. Well, how does that happen? Uh, you have to have high enough speed. To have high enough speed, you have to have high enough temperatures. So uh, in a star, the gravity is pulling all the material together, all of these uh, hydrogen ions together uh, into a very dense nucleus. Uh, and in doing that, by compressing it, it makes it hotter. And that is what gives the, the uh, protons enough energy to where they can, they can get together. Now, this is a very carefully, delicately balanced process. Uh, they've calculated that gravity, gravity has to be accurate to one part in 10 to the 40th. And that is a very precise accuracy for this process to work. The strong force has to be um, to within uh, half a percent for the process to work and the electromagnetic force to within plus or minus 4%. Now, the weak force governs decay of neutrons into protons, and I'm not going to talk about that one, and I don't have a good number for it, but it also is, is finely tuned. Oh, um, so in stars, uh, if the star is large enough, it'll convert hydrogen into, into helium at about uh, 20 million degrees K. Then there's a process that gets helium into carbon at about 200 million degrees K. Uh, then silicon, uh, then carbon into silicon and oxygen, 1,500 million degrees K, and then from silicon up to iron at 2,700 million degrees K. Uh, iron is the heaviest element that can be produced in stars by this process. 
they think that the heavier elements were produced by supernova. Um, and to go through all these steps requires a very large star. Our sun is mostly fusing hydrogen into helium. Okay, so the process is the gravity compresses hydrogen and helium. The compression heats the hydrogen and helium to high temperatures, sufficient to overcome the electromagnetic repulsion, but not high enough to overcome the strong force. If they're going together too fast, they'll just bounce off of each other. Um, and that, that fusion produces the energy in stars, uh, and then the, the stars go through cycle as they, as they fuse progressively heavier elements together. And uh, we talked about the delicate balance uh, among those four forces, which uh, would seem to be evidence for purposeful design because those parameters are so carefully balanced. Um, okay, so the sun produces energy by, by nuclear fusion. That energy is transferred into light energy. So the sun is emitting light uh, in a spectrum, uh, different colors, if you will. Uh, the, uh, the light that's generated uh, has a, a range of wavelengths. And now it's interesting, <clears throat> if you look at the transmission of light through our atmosphere, our atmosphere will not transmit many wavelengths of light. But it turns out that one of its best transmission places is right where the solar spectrum is. So our atmosphere, the oxygen and nitrogen and carbon dioxide and all, all the things in our atmosphere appear to have been designed so that they allow the light from our sun to come through. Um, <clears throat> okay, so this the light gets through the atmosphere, uh, and now life uh, depends on photosynthesis because all life ultimately uses plant matter, uh, which the energy in plants is produced by photosynthesis. And it turns out that the biochemistry in photosynthesis uses the same spectrum of light as is generated by the sun and is transmitted through our atmosphere. Now, those are, those, all the, those three things are physically independent, and yet they fit together to make life possible on Earth. Very interesting observation. Okay, let's talk about water. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think I'm going to have some here. It's really, uh, really good stuff. And we all take it for granted. Um, however, uh, water has some rather unusual and very beneficial properties. Uh, first of all, uh, it has solvent properties. It uh, dissolves gases, salts, organic molecules, and it conducts ions. And in our cells, all of those things are important. Uh, so the solubility of different things in water is extremely important to our cell function. Water has a high surface tension. That means capillary action can pull water up in trees and plants, up uh, from the ground into uh, to higher places. Uh, it has very advantageous thermal properties. One is that it expands when it freezes. And uh, this means that a layer of ice forms on top of the water, which insulates the water underneath the ice from freezing. And so it allows us to keep a, uh, a big quantity of liquid water on the earth at uh, all times. Um, 
It uh, is also really good for cooling things like us when we uh, perspire. Or it, uh, the, the, it's the evaporation of the water that, uh, that cools us. And water has a very, a very high heat of evaporation, uh, which means you have to put a lot of water into sweat to make it evaporate. And so that means that you take a lot of heat out of yourself to cause the water to evaporate, and that's how we're, how we're cooled. Um, it also has a very high specific heat, meaning you have to put a lot of heat in to raise its temperature or take a lot of heat out to cool it down. That gives our bodies some temperature stability because we're mostly water. So this, uh, all these things, the preservation of liquid water, the, the cooling ability and uh, the temperature stability, are all very strange properties that uh, that seem to have been designed for, uh, you know, so that we can exist. <clears throat> Water also has just the right viscosity. Okay, viscosity is a property of materials that uh, determine how easy it is to make it move uh, past something, like flow in a pipe. Um, air has very low viscosity. It's, it's easy to move, not too much friction as it goes through pipes and tubes. Um, there are some things like uh, honey has a very high viscosity. A lot of heavy oils have high viscosity. They take a lot of power to get them to move through uh, tubes and things. Well, our blood vessels are tubes, and uh, our blood is mostly water. And it turns out that if the viscosity of water was just a little bit higher, our hearts would have to be bigger to pump it. As a matter of fact, just a little bit higher, and our hearts would have to be so big that they wouldn't fit in our bodies. Uh, or, on the other hand, uh, our blood vessels would have to be larger uh, so that uh, the flow doesn't have to be as fast to get all the nutrients we need to our cells. Uh, including our capillaries. Our capillaries would have to be larger. Um, but if our blood vessels and capillaries were larger, that wouldn't leave enough room for our cells. Okay? So um, um, water, the viscosity of water is just right so that we can mechanically function. Um, and if the viscosity was lower, you might say, well, it'd be easier to pump it and we can have smaller blood vessels, but with lower viscosity, uh, you create turbulent flow, which would damage blood vessels. And so water has just the right viscosity for, uh, for life. Uh, and there, so there is an amazing fit between all these properties of water and um, uh, the, the temperature that water is at on Earth and the function that it serves for, for our lives. Uh, oxygen is a very interesting thing. Uh, it, of course, uh, oxidizes hydrocarbons in our body to give us, uh, to give us energy, uh, which as a waste product gives off uh, water and carbon dioxide. Uh, uh, oxygen has the highest oxidation energy of any element except fluorine. Um, and it's relative, relatively inert below 50 degrees C which is nice because if it wasn't inert below 50 degrees C, we would be, you know, well, burning up. Crispy critters. Um, and uh, the atmosphere uh, 
the, the composition of water is just about right. I think it's, uh, of oxygen, is just about right. I think it's 20%, something like 20%, 23%. Uh, if it was higher, we would have spontaneous combustion and we would burn up. Uh, and if it was lower, we wouldn't be able to get enough oxygen for our, our form of uh, respiration. And um, so, you know, oxygen has real, just really great properties for allowing us to have energy. Uh, and its solubility in water is just right for all these processes to happen. Carbon dioxide, well, you probably um, take water for granted, carbon dioxide, you may not think of at all, unless you're talking about the carbonation in your soft drinks. But carbon dioxide is a waste product of making energy in our body, uh, and we have to expel it through our lungs. But it has to get to our lungs, and it gets to our lungs through the blood vessels. It turns out that carbon dioxide forms a bicarbonate, which is a very efficient way of getting the carbon dioxide transferred from our cells to our lungs. Um, and it also uh, gives very unique pH buffering, the level of uh, acid in our blood to, to keep it in balance. And it has just the right properties for, uh, for photosynthesis, which is what the plants use to make energy. So carbon dioxide, very carefully designed. Uh, and then there's carbon. Um, carbon makes thousands of different molecules. As a matter of fact, there are at least 100,000 uh, mo uh, different molecules that are made from carbon. And this big diversity of molecules are necessary for life. I mean, it's what we're made of. Um, without that diversity, uh, life wouldn't be possible. Those carbon com uh, compounds are, are stable. Well, they're, they're metastable, meaning they have just the right stability uh, so that they don't break apart, but they are... Uh, unstable enough so that they can participate in all kinds of different chemical reactions. Um, some people have suggested that we might have a life form based on something besides carbon. And of course, the one that comes to mind is silicon because it's in the same place on the periodic chart of the, of the elements. Um, you all have seen Star Trek and they have these uh, silicon life forms, right? Well, afraid not. Uh, silicon only forms a few compounds not nearly enough that are necessary for life. And so carbon really is designed for life and it doesn't look like anything else will work. Um, okay, so let's get away from the elements and look at uh, things having to do with our, with our Earth and our galaxy. Our... Uh, <coughs> Our Earth is uh, just the right, uh, uh, well, our galaxy is just the right distance from the center of the galaxy. If we were near the center, the radiation levels there are very high and life would be impossible. Uh, we are also outside of one of the spiral arms where the radiation level is, is very high. Um, and uh, there are a, an abundance of heavy elements in our part of the galaxy. Heavy elements meaning heavier than hydrogen which is what we're made of, which is nice because now we have all the material to, uh, to make life. We have the right star. Uh, we talked about its spectrum, uh, which is very carefully uh, matched. It's also a single, very stable star. 
binary star systems don't work too well for life because uh, orbits are kind of messed up and you know weather becomes very chaotic. Um, we're at the right position in the solar system. Uh, we're at the right distance from the sun to give liquid water, which is necessary, uh, and to give us the right temperature for organic chemistry. And we have these large outer planets that protect us from uh, asteroids uh, and meteors that are coming into our solar system. Um, <clears throat> the Earth has a circular orbit. It's a little tiny bit elliptical. But if it was more elliptical, we would have huge uh, changes from, in temperature uh, from summer to, to winter. Uh, and... Uh, the atmosphere would be unstable, and because of the temperature fluctuations, we probably wouldn't be able to survive. Uh, the Earth rotates, which stabilizes uh, weather and temperature, uh, and its axis tilt also stabilizes weather and temperature and creates the different seasons. A planet like Jupiter, uh, its axis doesn't tilt. Uh, the axis is perpendicular to its plane of uh, uh, of uh, revolution, and uh, so it has these huge windstorms, if you can call them windstorms, around its equator and also the, through the rest of it that would not be very conducive to, uh, to life. And also a, we have a large moon that stabilizes that axis at the, at the value that it is. Um, I believe that's probably because any wobbling in the axis tilt has been damped out by tidal effects that you know from the moon. I think that's the reason. We have the right geophysical parameters. Uh, we have a, a liquid iron core that, because it can rotate, uh, creates a magnetic field that protects us from cosmic radiation. Um, we have radioactive decay uh, in the Earth's crust uh, and also throughout the Earth that produces uh, heat. Um, <clears throat> we have plate tectonics that uh, take a carbon that drops to the bottom of the ocean and subducts it uh, into the Earth's mantle, and then later volcanoes will spit it up. So it impacts the carbon cycle, which is uh, important for life. The quantity of water is just about right, a little bit more, and uh, we would be sea creatures, I guess. Um, a little bit less, and there really wouldn't be enough to keep our weather going. Um, and, of course, the amount of oxygen we already talked about. Now, if you take all these parameters that I've talked about so far, and there, there are a few hundred more, and you assign probabilities to all of those parameters uh, and calculate the probability that a planet will have all of these characteristics that are necessary for life, it comes out to be a probability far less than 10 raised to the 22nd power. Now, why is that important? It's because that's the estimate of the number of planets that there are in the universe. So it is unlikely that a planet that can support life as the Earth does will exist anywhere in the universe. But wait a minute, we're here. We're here. That means that we fit all of these very improbable parameters. And so the question is, why is that? Okay, uh, this fine-tuning is recognized by a scientist, uh, a guy named Stephen Hawking, who uh, we, we talked about a, little, a minute ago. 
The laws of science as we know them at present contain many fundamental numbers. The remarkable fact is that the value of these numbers seems to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. Now, Steve Hawking uh, doesn't believe in God, um, but he still recognizes that things are fine-tuned. He believes in a multiverse, uh, which is his way of getting around this fine-tuning problem. Um, Penziah sees the guy that uh, discovered the, uh, uh, the background radiation. Um, he says astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing and delicately balanced to provide exactly the conditions required to support life. In the absence of an absurdly improbable accident, the observations of modern science seem to suggest an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan. Now, he doesn't believe it's a supernatural plan, but nonetheless, he admits that it sure looks like one. Now, why can't he jump over and say that it is? I don't know. Um, and then uh, uh, Davies, who is a, an astronomer, uh, says that there is now broad agreement among physicists and cosmologists that the universe is, in several respects, fine-tuned for life. <coughs> he has some interesting ideas. Uh, if, if you want to find out about them, ask me a question afterward, and I'll, I'll try to explain it. Uh, Fred Hoyle, a uh, brilliant scientist, uh, he says a common sense interpretation of facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. Dyson Freeman, the more I examine the universe and the details of its architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe in some sense, must have known we were coming. And then Paul Davies again, it is for me uh, evidence that there is something going on behind it all. The impression of design is overwhelming. None of these people are intelligent design proponents. They're just scientists. They don't believe necessarily believe in God. I don't think any of them do. But they still recognize the design. Okay, one really big problem that, the, uh, uh, that some people, the atheists, like to bring up is, well, if God created the universe, then who created God? And, uh, of course, they think they have a stumped there because we can't answer that. But there are a couple of possible explanations. Um, if uh, if uh, God created the universe, both space and time came into existence when he created them. Um, and uh, if, if space and time came into existence, that means that God lives outside of time. And that means talking about someone who created God is irrelevant because if God is outside of time, then he was not created in time. He just simply is. Uh, and... Uh, he is outside of, uh, outside of time. And, uh, <clears throat> and also, um, in, uh, in philosophy, there's this idea that everything that exists has to have a cause except for the first cause. Uh, and so, um, if you go back with an infinite regression, that is really kind of a, a self-defeating argument. And so, the idea that we have... God, who just simply is and is uncaused, 
uh, is a philosophical pro- uh, you know, probability, I think. So uh, being outside of time, being the first cause, means that we really don't have to find a creator for them, for him. He just simply is. And I think that's the way he described himself in the Bible, isn't it? Okay, so the uh, origin of the universe. How can we explain it? Isaiah 58, 18. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. And that's what we've been talking about. All these parameters that are very finely tuned to allow for habitation on the earth. And so I think the... uh, the astronomy and the physics definitely point to a creator outside uh, of, its, of, of the universe. And um, that God, as described in the Bible, fits those, that description perfectly well. So I think we can be confident that we have a God who has created all these things. Oop, references, okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, this presentation, I you know, I didn't bring in some of the uh, some of the parameters I could have uh, that have to do with an old Earth. But yes, I I believe that the Earth is is old, a few billion years old. Um, Oh, that boy, that's an interesting question. I, I guess I am what you would call a progressive progressive creationist. Uh, if you think about it, young earthers are progressive creationists too, but they just squeeze it into six 24-hour days. I just stretch it out over uh, you know a few billion years. Um, so I believe that God created, just as Genesis said, uh, living things according to their kinds uh, over a period of over a period of time, uh, and that Adam and Eve were real people and lived on this earth pretty much at the time the Bible says they did, you know, maybe 8,000 years ago. Um, and, uh, and yet, I think all this fits uh, into an interpretation of Genesis and scientific evidence, good scientific evidence, very well. So what I've, uh, now the, the truth is, I have allowed what I know about science to influence how I interpret the Bible. And I know some people don't like that idea, but I think it's really the only reasonable thing to do because we do it all the time. We always allow a knowledge of languages, a knowledge of cultures to influence how we interpret the Bible. Does that answer your question? Billions, yeah. But that God created Adam and Eve as the first semen relatively recently. Yes. Mm-hmm. And what about the earlier life forms? Was all that basically creation of God? I mean, as far as life was about the same? So, so we have to deal with other hominids uh, <clears throat> who, according to uh, the evidence, were living. And I think, we, I think we have pretty good evidence for hominids living on Earth maybe as much as 100,000 years ago. There was a difference between them and Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had a knowledge of good and evil. And I think that's 
and uh, yeah, um, and created in the image of God, certainly. Um, so I think uh, I think that hominids were they modern man? I think there was a difference between them and Adam and Eve. Um, but yeah, I think that the uh, that the time scale of the Old Testament for Adam and Eve is is about right. Is that the difference between knowledge of good and evil? Uh, I think it may be. Some people will argue that, well, my dog knows the difference between good and evil. Actually, the dog knows the difference between being punished and not being punished. And, and so that, that's, that's kind of an open question. I, I tend to think that they don't have that knowledge of good and evil, but, and we do, but I don't really know. Yes? Are you saying that the form of natural selection? Say that Are again? Are you saying that's a form, to you, of natural selection? Natural selection. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't believe in natural selection to any great extent. I think we have indications that there are some very minor changes to organisms due to natural selection. I don't believe in evolution. Uh, if you came to the talk on uh, design and biology, I think you would see that. I actually believe that we're probably devolving. Um, Adam and Eve were probably genetically superior to us. Mm -hmm. Where did our minds come from? Um, you know, uh, one question is, what comes first, the firing of neutrons or our thoughts, our neurons or our thoughts? Um, if it's our neurons that are firing, why should we expect them to fire in any kind of a coherent way? So that means our thoughts are preceding our mechanical activity in our brains. Where do they come from? Um, well, God created us. Our mind comes from the mind of God. It's not equivalent to his by any stretch of the imagination, but that's where it comes from. The spirit, the soul. Um, if you can figure out what the difference is between those things, let me know. <laughs> yes. Oh, global warming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, when I was working at Sandia Labs, I worked in climate change for a number of years and, uh, and studied it. Um, and um, I do believe that man is contributing a small amount to global warming, a small amount. I think that most of global warming can be explained by natural cycles. And being an old earth creationist, uh, I, look at, uh, I look at the temperature cycles that they get from ice, ice cores and other things, and you see the temperatures going up and coming down, coming up and coming down, ice ages followed by periods of warmth, and then an ice age followed by periods of warmth. Periods of warmth. And so I think most of the global warming we see today has been going on for probably a few hundred years. Because the, uh, I, I know for a fact that uh, ice up in Alaska was much farther down into the, uh, the Gulf than it is today. So the glaciers have been melting over the last couple hundred years. 
that's not due to man's activity. There's some other cycle going on, but man is adding a little bit to it. Um, and you know, we should take reasonable means to conserve energy and things like that. But, uh, but to say that man is the cause of climate change or, uh, or, or warming, I think, is, is not correct. That's only a, a very small part of the, of the problem. I know that uh, on the one hand, people like to say man is doing it all. And on the other hand, man isn't doing anything. Uh, I think the, uh, the science says that it's really somewhere in between. Yes? So for our younger person here, yeah. you talked about the, uh, the incredible number there, 10 with 20 or 22 zeros behind it, chances of a planet existing that would support life. Can you put that in some kind of perspective? How big a number is 10 to the 20th? Yeah, let's see. Of course, as you said, it's 10 to the 20th is a number, a one with 20 zeros after it. Um, <clears throat> boy, I'd like to have a good way to put that into perspective. I'm trying to think of something with 10 to the 20th somethings. Well, okay. Postulated right. how many electrons are in the universe, right? More or less, about 10 to the 80th, yeah. 10 to the 80th. Mm-hmm. Our uh, national debt is $15 trillion. That would be 15 times 10 to the 15th. And so this would be uh, billions of billions of trillions. So you take billions of billions of United States debts and multiply it times our debt, and there you have the number of dollars. So... uh, Yeah, it's a, it's it's it, it's a very yeah it, it's a ten to the twentieth a very large number one over ten to the twentieth a very small number okay, ten to the twenty so second. Uh, how many light years large is the universe? Let's say that. We don't know for sure. We can right. see back. I think the latest is about thirteen point seven billion years that we can see across, okay. and it may be bigger. But we don't know because we can't see. Yeah. yeah. And you don't think God could have created another earth with other people in another place? Uh, he absolutely could have done that. Yeah, he absolutely could have. But if we ever do find another uh, planet with intelligent life, um, my bet is is that God is the one that created it because it probably didn't come into existence by by random chance. Yeah. And it really makes for nice movies and science fiction, you know. <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, I wouldn't be surprised if we never find life anywhere else also. You've, uh, you've heard that they found Earth-like planets in the news. They're finding Earth-like planets all the time. They are basing that on the fact that the planet uh, might be able to support liquid water. And yet I showed you many, many parameters that also have to be met. Uh, for for life to exist, particularly intelligent life. And uh, so they say, oh, liquid water, we have life. No, no. There are too many other parameters that have to be met also. Uh, How about the dating methods that they're using? Ah, okay, boy. Um, Gee, I ought to... (laughs) 
have another talk here. Um, okay, dating methods. Um, you know, most most dating methods have to do with uh, radio, uh, you know, radioactive decay, uh, radiological decay. Um, one of the uh, one of the ones people like to use is carbon fourteen, um, and uh, carbon fourteen uh, is. Uh, Calibrated by tree ring data back to about 10,000 years. So the two of those have to kind of agree before they'll uh, use a date for the carbon-14. Up to about 30,000 years ago, you can use carbon-14 dating pretty well. Um, beyond that, carbon-14 doesn't, doesn't work because everything has decayed away. Ah, good question. They found uh, they found some carbon fourteen in what they think are ancient coal deposits, oil deposits, diamonds, um, and uh, I think one possibility is that those things were uh, created uh, not as long ago as we thought. That's a possibility, but there's another one: uh, uranium and thorium in the Earth's crust will spontaneously fission. There's spontaneous fission going on all the time uh, in the Earth's crust. That uh, spontaneous fission produces neutrons, which are the same as the cosmic rays that come and turn nitrogen into carbon-14. So in the Earth's crust, carbon-14 is constantly being generated by spontaneous fission of uranium and thorium, mostly uranium. So in some places where uh, uranium concentrations are fairly high, you might expect to see nearby carbon deposits with rather appreciable amounts of carbon-14 in them. Um, they also find carbon deposits at some places in the Earth where there is no measurable carbon-14. So if they are young, how do you explain that? Uh, so that's, that's a really interesting issue today. And just you know, keep in tune to see what's going on. But there is another source of carbon-14 in that spontaneous fission of uh, uranium in the Earth's surface. Yes? Do you believe that life will be able to sustain itself on Mars? Oh, good heavens. <laughs> <laughs> Did you watch The Martian? No. Oh, you ought to, you ought to see that. People planning on going to Mars. What do yeah. you think will happen to them? What is the most inhospitable place on Earth to try and live? <laughs> Antarctica. Antarctica? Middle of the Sahara Desert? Everest. Everest? Yeah. You saw that movie. <laughs> yeah. Mars will be much worse. So uh, colonizing Mars, sure. Some small colony, large colonization, there's no way. We'd, we'd better move, it'd be better go to the Sahara Desert or to Antarctica. At least on Antarctica, we'd have a little bit of sun and could probably grow some things if we haul some dirt down there. Mars is pretty inhospitable. Even the moon... <laughs> Uh, I don't think they'll ever be. Even the moon would be pretty inhospitable. Well, they they certainly have to have shielding on their ship so that they don't get all the cosmic radiation. Yeah, but that's a problem we have today with cos astronauts that go into the, you know, into space to the moon around the Earth. Yeah. Any other questions or comments? Yeah, 
there is indeed a philosophy to science, and you will uh, find that among many scientists, they have a biblical Christian philosophy, but you will find that particularly the ones that are in the higher echelons of science, that their, their philosophy or worldview is materialistic. Matter and energy is all that exists. The idea of God is crazy. Mm -hmm. But the, uh, the evidence suggests otherwise. Now, I want to say that all these things I've shown you today, all of these coincidences that allow for life, I look at that as an engineer and I say, boy, some really great engineer has put all this together. Think of how it all has to go together so that life works. An engineer with, to me, a mind that is so amazing I can't even imagine it. And uh, the, uh, the engineer that fits the bill, of course, is God. And um, I think this is a real cause to, to worship him because of his creation. It says in Romans, doesn't it, that we, uh, that we should know him by what is created. And if we really look at it, we do and worship him because of just the amazing thing that he's done and how amazing he is. Okay. So thank you all for coming. Thanks for coming. How is Mr. Hawking doing with his disability? You know, he's he's pretty old now. Yeah. Do you remember what the name of the disease is that he has? We call it Lou Gehrig's disease, but oh. what's the official name for it? ALS. 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 Yeah. That's it. That's what he has. Mm -hmm. Most people die oh, from wow. ALS, and they thought he was going to die when he was young, but he didn't. Oh. He's he's kind of an exception, and he is a very bright guy. Yeah. He's got a whole lot of backing for him to live. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> yeah. If anyone can live, uh, he's going to live. If modern science can make him live. That's, that's true, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I, I enjoy his books. Um, I like to read them. He comes to the wrong conclusion, but it's really very interesting. <laughs> thing I really find pretty hilarious uh, where you find that uh, measurable uh, evidences don't uh, support what we want to be true and so we make up uh, 
trillions of other universes to play a yeah, uh, roll the dice game to be able to say that uh, things are the way you want them to be. Mm -hmm. Call that science. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I didn't tell you about Davy's theory. Have you ever watched Star Trek where they go back to the future and they bring some invention with them that gets carried on into the in, in, into the future? They go back into the past. And, uh, and, and I have seen. And um, that's kind of what uh, Davies believes is that uh, there's this knowledge floating around the universe and uh, uh, it's kind of in, in a way cyclical that knowledge can go from uh, the present into the past and then come back into the future. <laughs> you know, I, you read this and you say, boy, there is no limit to the, uh, the speculation and uh, separation from facts that these physicists can can do today. I started yeah. reading the link. <laughs> the link. I heard of the, the link. It's a book about them going uh, and discovering that tool that they used to make the pyramids and all that. Ah. Tool. They went. They went and found it in a cave. It was in the clutches of some um, priest, prehistoric man, and. <laughs> According to the, um, it's Walt Beck, Becker, I think Walt Becker, yeah. his first book that he ever wrote is the link, and I guess the whole world in this book is after that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so it's going to be the whole book tells about how the whole world wants that, and all, all the bad and all the good and all the people are focusing on that. Interesting to see how that will <laughs> develop. Uh, a lot of crazy ideas out there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. For the Oop, Thank you.